So when I was younger, think like my childhood, teenage years, I loved to sing for people. But my experience was really impacted by the context that I was singing in. I had a lot of opportunities. From about age seven or so on, I began participating in community theater. And like once the theater bug bit me, it didn't let go. For years, I was like almost always in a play. But as I got older, other opportunities to perform were extended. So singing solos for the school show choir, competing in vocal competitions, requests to sing at my parents' church, or at a wedding, and so on. And what I found was that I only got nervous, like I only felt that kind of sense of stage fright when I was asked to sing not in the context of a character in a play or like my show choir's play performance, but when I was simply singing as soloist Leah Gallion, that was when I freaked out a little. So Leah as Cinderella had no issues relaxing, controlling her breath, hitting her high notes, but Leah, Leah Gallion, which was my maiden name, the soloist, or the competitor in the vocal competition, she might. At times, the tension I felt performing without a character was like so intense that I carried the stress in my jaw and I developed like major TMJ problems where my jaw would actually like lock while I was trying to sing. It was, it was pretty intense. And it wasn't until I came to faith in a real way as a college theater student that I began to understand maybe why some of those experiences of performing felt so different to me. Because it wasn't like the music was that different. It wasn't like the skills needed were that different. But the experience was very different for me. For me, there was a safety in playing a part. A safety that as a survivor of childhood trauma, I kind of needed. It was helpful to escape the wounding of trauma through playing pretend, through becoming somebody else. And so being Leah was vulnerable, but being Cinderella, I was protected. It wasn't until I began to connect with Jesus and the God I experienced through Jesus-centered faith that I could feel safe and loved just as myself, that Leah was created in the image of God that Leah was knit together in her mother's womb. Leah was worthy of love just as she was, no need to play a part. It was a profoundly healing experience for me. In the beginning of a transition in my life in which I felt ultimately called to kind of leave the vocation of acting behind and live into a more authentic, integrated way of being in the world, a path that would eventually lead me into ministry as I sought to cultivate spaces where others could experience the healing power of connection with the divine that celebrates and welcomes their full, authentic selves. Well, I share this this morning, acknowledging that we as a community are now ourselves in a moment of transition. A week from tomorrow will be the beginning of my 12-week clergy sabbatical. Yes, woo, it is happening. <laughs> After speaking from this platform or like the Zoom version of it for I've been doing the math between two and four times 
a month for the last seven to eight years. That's a lot of talks. <laughs> it's time to take a break. <laughs> this is my last time speaking to you before August. So in recent weeks, I've had some conversations in different contexts with some of you about this upcoming season, but I haven't had a chance to like talk to us as a collective about this season that we're preparing to begin. So today I wanted to just take some time with our last um, teaching together to do that, to offer some reflections on what I'm embarking on as I understand it, and perhaps what you are as well. So our two sets of experiences over the next few months are not gonna be one and the same, but I do genuinely believe that each of them is important in different ways. And ultimately, that God might be present to us in both what I experience and what you experience as well. So first, I want to just start off considering what it is that I, your pastor, is hoping to engage in over this three-month period of time. What is this sabbatical intended to be? Different people take different sabbaticals for different reasons. Sometimes pastors take clergy sabbaticals and they are intended to write a book or to do some big, you know, go back to seminary for some big um, continuing education. That is not the goal of this 12 weeks for me. If I had to sum up the time um, in the best way I can, it would probably be this, a season of solitude and rest. A season of solitude and rest. In recent weeks, I've been reflecting on the practice of solitude. Truthfully, as an extrovert, it's not a practice that comes very naturally to me. I get my energy from people. I like connecting with people. I like fostering settings where connections between people can happen, which is why this vocation of pastoring is a pretty good fit for me. But all of us benefit, right? Not just from relational connection with others, but also from intentional withdrawal. We all need space for reflection, for quiet, for personal connection to the divine. And perhaps for those of us for whom that practice of withdrawal and solitude doesn't come as naturally, the need is even greater because it's easier to neglect. But when we look at our spiritual tradition, or most spiritual traditions for that matter, space, intentional space for quiet, for contemplation, for withdrawal from the crowd, this is seen as sacred. It is seen as vital for our spiritual health, particularly for those of us in some sort of leadership. So just looking at our tradition, Moses withdrew regularly. He went up to the mountain to be alone with the divine, sometimes for weeks on end. Elijah traveled for days to encounter the divine in a gentle whisper. Remember that story? On that same mountain. And of course, Jesus himself despite having perhaps unmatched capacity to engage with people, to teach, to minister with power, to heal, he himself had a regular ongoing practice of withdrawing from the crowds and the very real and pressing needs of others to spend time in solitude. We see it throughout the gospel. So at first, of course, we see the practice immediately after Jesus was baptized which many see as the official start of his ministry. Luke describes it this way in the fourth chapter. Then right after the baptism, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Fun, right? 
So Jesus had just had this huge anointing moment. He's rich with God's potent presence, perhaps in a way that's never quite been experienced before. And the first thing he does isn't go out and perform a miracle. It's not to preach a sermon from the banks of the Jordan. He withdraws to the wilderness for 40 whole days, drawn by the divine presence within him. And that withdrawal to the wilderness wasn't a one-time thing. In Mark, we're told very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. That was a regular thing. In Luke 5, the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Sometimes his alone time seemed to be important for, like, yielding a helpful insight. In Luke 6, we're told Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he designated apostles. So the choosing of the apostles came after the night spent alone on the mountain. Sometimes his withdrawal was a response to what was happening around him. After hearing of the death of his cousin, John the Baptist, Jesus' first response was not to turn to John's friends and followers and comfort them. As we read in Matthew 14, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. So despite being a person who clearly loved people, connected easily with all kinds, Jesus regularly took time to separate from the group. At times he withdrew by himself. At times he brought his closest followers with him. So it wasn't always alone. Sometimes he brought the closest ones with him. At times he wanted to pray. Other times it seems like he just needed a break from kind of being on. He needed to rest. He needed to eat and drink and have intimate time with his closest friends. And we see that pattern throughout his life, including on the last night before his death. As he was preparing for what was to come, Jesus withdrew to the garden, needing to separate from the bigger group, connect with God and his three closest friends. Of course, I share all this information about Jesus, not because I see myself in like the same league as him in any way <laughs> in terms of leadership or spiritual power, but to on the contrary, when I look at this example, I feel my own sense of humility and conviction. I'm reminded that Jesus, like Moses, like Elijah, like many others through the ages, understood the need for quiet, for solitude, for rest. And if he had that need as a leader, how much more do I? And yet, I acknowledge it's a need I have at times struggled to adequately attend to, particularly through the last couple of years of pandemic life. So part of why I find the practice of solitude challenging, probably part of it has, has to do with my personality. Yes, my extroversion is a piece of it, but that's not the whole. As I've been preparing for this time and seeking to set some intentions, I've recently started working with a spiritual director. And in my conversations and contemplative times with her, is it doing that thing again? So yeah, I, I was able to get it to stop by just turning it off and then turning it back on again. I don't know why it's doing that. 
but hopefully that will help. Sorry to the folks in Zoom. <laughs> Maybe I'll give them a moment just to see if that uh, comes back. We're good? Okay. Um, where was I? So I've started working with a spiritual director. And um, in my conversations and my contemplative times with her, I've been thinking afresh about the personality typology called the Enneagram. Okay? Some of you have heard me talk about this before. For those of you who aren't familiar, the Enneagram is an ancient personality typology, one that has origins likely in the pre-Christian era, but has been used throughout the ages by folks of many spiritual traditions, including Christians, um, as a tool for self-knowledge and spiritual growth. Anyway, the Enneagram proposes that there are nine essential types of personalities, that each of us falls into one of these types, and though our types can be expressed in a variety of ways, so there are certainly many nuances because people are diverse and complicated, understanding that kind of essential type helps us understand ourselves, both our patterns of behavior and the core motivations that lie behind them. It also outlines our potential places of weakness and ways in which we can grow. So I identify as what's known as an Enneagram 3, the role generally called the performer or the achiever. Threes are great at getting things done. We often are very successful at completing projects. We get straight A's. We launch businesses. We climb to the top of the corporate ladder. We can be successful entertainers. Or maybe we start churches. All of this may be admirable. Certainly, threes contribute a lot of positive things to the world that I think benefit everyone. But the dark side of being a three is that it can be hard for a three to recognize where their performance ends and the person within the role being performed actually begins. Without intentional work and reflection, threes can easily over-identify with the roles they play. Now, all of us human beings, we all wear masks in a sense, right? To be public-facing in the world. That's, that's normal. It's, it's fine. It's good. But threes can easily forget that the mask is just a mask and start to believe it's all of who they are. Threes often become so focused on the tasks at hand and achieving successes through competent performances that they can neglect their inner life. Left to their own devices, they don't give themselves space to feel their feelings, which at times, particularly in seasons of stress, can mean that their emotions catch up to them and leak out in unhealthy ways on those closest to them. All of that also can mean that over time, the performances themselves become superficial, perhaps even inauthentic, as they're not being fed by something true and rich beneath the surface. As much as it's painful to admit, I have seen these patterns at play in myself at times. And as I look back at all the stresses in recent years, that's felt particularly true. Particularly during the deepest seasons of lockdown, when we had over a year of Zoom-only church at least three times a month, when my kids were struggling with distance learning, when my husband and I were both trying to work out of the same home, my way of coping with the stress was to buckle down 
to focus on all the tasks to be done, of which there were a lot, to rally all of my personal resources into the to-do list, and in, into putting together another Sunday, into soldiering on and carrying this community through a difficult time on behalf of those who couldn't carry it with me. But all of that rallying to the tasks has cost me. And by extension, those closest to me. Thank you. I know. I didn't necessarily feel the costs at the time. But I have felt them since. Over time, I've come to feel the inner fatigue, the lack of creativity, an atrophied imagination, difficulty hearing the voice of God, and the bitterness, the brittleness, brittleness of my own feelings breaking through. So, recognizing all of this, when I see that model of Jesus and other spiritual leaders, I feel like I understand it in a deeper way than I maybe ever have before. Because as a child, I learned that habit of losing myself in a role. And it was a helpful and important coping mechanism it protected me when I needed it, and it has been a part of my becoming who I am. But as I grow further into adulthood and seek deeper health and spiritual depth, I am coming more and more to understand kinesthetically the need in my life of putting down the roles I play for hours, for days, for weeks, so that my inner self can be fed. So my connection to the divine can be renewed. So I can hear that still small voice that spoke to Elijah on the mountainside. So I can sit like Mary at the feet of Jesus rather than running around frustrated and overwhelmed like her sister Martha. So I can remember once again that I, Leah, am made in God's image. And I am worthy of love, apart from anything I do or any role I play. In preparation for this time, I've been returning to some reading on the Enneagram. And if you ever want to, like, feel the ouch, you read Richard Rohr. <laughs> Um, and so Richard Rohr's work on the Enneagram, this is what he says about why practicing solitude is so essential for the spiritual growth of a three. To be healed and redeemed, threes must learn to be alone. They need a place of silence and seclusion where there is no public feedback, no applause, and no admiration. Contemplative prayer and silent meditation are the appropriate prescriptions, but the path into the depths is wearisome and far. 
When threes begin to discover their inner world in the beginning, they generally make that a project too. They want to meditate successfully. It takes a while before they notice that the point is to do nothing, to learn nothing, simply to exist. And as soon as threes learn this, they will make the effort simply to exist and to learn nothing as much, with as much success as possible. The fruitful way into the depths demands a great deal of patience from threes and the readiness to experience nothing spectacular for quite a while or to be confronted with their own hostility, boredom, and superficiality. <sighs> right? <laughs> Friends, I'm not sure 12 weeks is going to be long enough for me to truly learn to simply exist. But I do hope it's a start. So I don't think this time of Sabbath rest and intentional seclusion is going to be particularly easy for me. I anticipate in ways it will be challenging, as Rohr's description indicates. But I do see it as necessary. I do know it is necessary. And I hope in that way it is healing. And I'm so thankful I can't express how much gratitude I have for this community and granting me the gift of this time. Thank you. So with that in mind, I do want to set some intentions and communicate a few clear asks for these upcoming 12 weeks. And the first is this, and this is the hardest for me. Don't call me. <laughs> I might call you, maybe, but don't expect it. <laughs> so it's hard for me to say as a three who genuinely cares about you and who wants you to think well of me and know that I love you, but I feel the wisdom in taking this time of solitude seriously. And so that means, you know, I'm not going to spend all of it completely alone, of course. I'm a mom with kids and stuff. Um, so, of course, I'm going to be engaged in family time and friendships and relationships outside of Haven, meeting with my spiritual director, and maybe at times I might reach out to folks in this community on occasion to connect in some way, but I'm going to be working really hard to protect this break from the pastor role. And it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a blurry role, right? It's, it's like being in relationship with people that are in the community that I lead. I kind of just am always wearing that hat. And so please don't take it personally if you don't hear from me at all in the next 12 weeks, and I expect most of you will not, okay? And it doesn't mean I don't love you. Um, <laughs> I've told Jeannie to come. I, I will be in contact with Jeannie, provided we can, like, never talk about Haven. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, she, of course, will reach out to me if there's a medical emergency or something of that nature. Of course, I want to know. Of course, I will be in, in contact with you if that happens. Um, but otherwise, I look forward to catching up with you in August. The second intention, I would say, is do pray for me as you feel led. I welcome your prayer on my behalf when you think of me. Feel free to pray as you feel led. Consider connecting with divine, inviting God to be present to me in this time, and allow this season to be healing and regenerative. I, I welcome that. I'm grateful for that. And the third thing I would say is this. I'd encourage you to support the work of Haven continuing in this sabbatical season. 
This will mean different things for different ones of us. First and foremost, I hope all of you will actively support Jeannie in every single way you can. As our other only staff member, she's assuming the bulk of my day-to-day -day tasks and the burden of carrying community leadership on her shoulders. And as somebody who did that by myself for many years, I know the toll it can take. So do what you can to support her, whether it's volunteering for a Sunday role or offering to help organize something or simply communicating kindness, appreciation, care. But also, this sabbatical time is not just about Jeannie stepping in and taking everything. It's not, my hope is that this season for this Haven community will be one of more cooperative care and collective learning as the community by necessity becomes something different without my leadership in this time. And that brings me to the reflection around what this community is barking on in my, as my sabbatical begins. What might the experience be for y'all? If my call is to a season of solitude and rest, I think your call is different. I might describe it this way. You, Haven, are called to a season of new opportunity for personal and communal growth. New opportunity for personal and communal growth. The New Testament gives us multiple examples of the way that the community Jesus formed stepped up, took risks, tried new things, and became what Jesus intended it to be in the times that he stepped back. So there was that time he sent out his 12 apostles on their own to preach, to heal, to minister. Luke describes it this way in chapter 9. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and heal the sick. And they set out, went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. And that went well. It went really well. And a while later, Jesus does the same with a larger group of followers, this time sending out 72 of them. And after he sends them out and he gives them all the instructions, Luke says, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submitted to us in your name. And their joy in doing the work themselves and seeing it bear fruit brings joy to Jesus and he gives thanks to God from that place. So Jesus celebrates the way that God's presence is evident, not just in his ministry, but in the work of those who have followed him. They are equipped with spiritual power. They have the capacity to use their gifts to bring life to the world around them, just as Jesus had been doing. And of course, nowhere would this be more vital than after Jesus' death and resurrection. According to the story told in the book of Acts, Jesus spends some time with his followers after his resurrection, but then he departs. He ascends into heaven. He leaves. And it's only after he goes that the Holy Spirit is gifted in a real powerful way to the community. It's only after he's gone that they begin to demonstrate, fed by that spirit, a kind of cooperative care for one another, a care that's contagious. In Acts 2, it's described this way. Once Jesus departs and the Spirit's been poured out on the community that had gathered around him, it says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer 
Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What a powerful picture of the collective beauty that can happen when each of us joins together and brings what we have to the communal table to be part of the group experience. When that happens, we have the capacity to cultivate new things that couldn't have existed when one core person was influencing everything. Of course, it was important and beautiful for Jesus to lead and to embody his gifts powerfully as he did. And it was also important and beautiful for the community he cultivated to go on beyond him and to become what it needed to be when it was not time for him to be present in the same way. So friends, I just want to encourage and bless you to let this season be a time of creativity, experimentation, and new creation in Haven's story. I hope it's a season where members of this community make new discoveries about their own gifts, their own capacity to do things, perhaps very differently than I would do them. I hope and pray it's a season for our collective to discover some new ways of being community, new senses of calling, new purposes for Haven to live into. I don't think the call is just to mark time and try to do everything the way I would do it, or to just continually ask, like, what will Leah think about this? I speak permission and blessing to you to attend to what the Spirit is doing in you, each personally and collectively, and to trust it. Because I trust you. I do. I trust you to listen well and to be open to the opportunities of this season for you. So I'm going to be praying for you as you do so and look forward with anticipation to learning what you discover and what you become in my absence. And that brings me to how I want to end. I want to end with a picture that came up last month as our Haven Vision team met for our quarterly meeting. This is a group of Haven leaders that meet regularly with Jeannie and I to kind of pray and discern together where Haven might be called to go. And we opened our time in March with a, a time of prayer. And as we prayed collectively, it kind of a picture seemed to form the picture was something akin to two paths diverging, sets of experiences taking place, two spiritual journeys, two sets of revelation. Both were distinct from each other without any bridges between them until the end of separation when the path joined again. And at that time in our picture, there was a sense of real synchronicity that everything that had been learned in each of those journeys was needed for the group journey ahead. We sensed with hope that my journey, my sabbatical experience will be significant and necessary just as the sabbatical experience this community will have apart from me will also be significant and necessary, but that God in their wisdom will weave these both together on the other side. 
So this is my hope and prayer I want to invite all of us into as we move forward, that we can experience the reality that both of our sacred legs in the journey are sacred, both of our separate legs are sacred, and they're both important to the bigger journey God has for us. May God use this time to help our community understand what it is meant, what it is meant to be in the season to come. And may the divine also be using this time to help me become the leader you need me to be to go there together. So I pray we all find life, hope, and joy in the journeying, both together and apart. Amen. Let me just take a moment to bless that, and then we'll go into our, um, we'll have our, our chance to break into groups and discuss a little bit. God, I'm grateful for the gift of this time, and I'm grateful for the wisdom of seasons. There is a reason that even in the story of creation, it is established there is work and there is rest. There is a rhythm to our days, and both are essential. I acknowledge the, the lack of rest in my own life, and I am grateful for the gift of, of time. Just as I'm also grateful for a community that is um, strong enough to, to move into a season in which my leadership is not present. Ultimately, God, this is your community more than it's any one of ours. We are grateful for the way that your spirit is expressed in our midst. And we look forward to seeing how that will continue to be in the journey each of us takes to come. Amen. Thank you, friends. I'm grateful for you. All right, so we do have some questions. We'll take about 10 minutes. Um, yeah, no, make it five. So I think something like seven. <laughs> A little over five, five to seven. Um, okay, I think there's just two questions. I actually don't have the handout in front of me. Can I borrow yours, Tucker? Thank you. Um, two sets of questions. One is they're kind of related to those two journeys we talked about. How have you engaged in solitude and rest in your life? In what way have those practices contributed to your health and spiritual growth? And if they've been neglected at times, what was the impact of that? Or what new opportunities for experimentation and community life do you hope for Haven in the next season? What do you hope for yourself? So, um, yeah, so we'll break into groups of four to six to chat about that for a bit. And then we'll uh, come back for worship. Honoring that, like, we are human beings, not just human doings and all of that. And that we all require care for ourselves in all the ways. And so... This song is inviting us to honor that. Mm -hmm. You gave us these bodies. 